Hey, this is Melissa Green, and you are listening to Grace Point Church's podcast. Our vision statement at Grace Point is loving God, loving self, and loving others. If you want to find out more, visit gracepoint.net. Established in 1986 as a federal holiday, it's observed on the third Monday of January each year to coincide with King's birthday, January 15th. 1968, immediately following King's assassination, Representative John Conyers introduced a bill in Congress to make King's birthday a national holiday. Conyers highlighted King's activism on behalf of trade unions. So for the next decade, unions did the majority of the campaigning for the holiday. 1976, some of us remember it well, Democrat from Georgia, Jimmy Carter, was elected president. Helped greatly by the unions and their members, uh, Carter endorsed what was called the King Day Bill. During his term, both sides of the political spectrum got on the wagon. The corporate community and the general public began to join the campaign. In 1980, and I still remember this moment, Stevie Wonder released the commemorative single, Happy Birthday. And subsequently, Wonder hosted uh, the Rally for Peace press conference in 1981. In the aftermath of that press conference, six million signatures were collected for a petition to Congress, the largest in history, at least to that point. The drive continued to gain momentum in spite of opposition. The opposition was mainly led by Senator Jesse Helms, who was critical of King's opposition to the Vietnam War and Helms often noted his purported ties to the Communist Party. At times, and I do remember uh, Helms openly questioning whether Martin Luther King was actually an important enough person, quote, to receive such an honor. Quietly and later admittedly regrettably, President Ronald Reagan mildly was opposed to the holiday. He finally relented after Congress passed the King Day Bill 338 to 90 and 78 to 22. President Reagan, not begrudgingly, but repentantly signed the bill on November 2nd, 1983 in the White House Rose Garden. It was observed for the first time two years later, January 20th, 1986. Interestingly, it took another 14 years before it was officially observed by all 50 states. For some 14 years, recalcitrant states, mostly in the South, resisted. Even more interestingly, only eight years ago, January 16, 2006, did Greenville County, South Carolina, become the last county in the U.S. to officially make it a paid holiday. Some states like Utah, Arizona, New Hampshire, uh, call it Human Rights Day. Many others refer to it as Civil Rights Day. Uh, also, a point of interest is it's the only, or rather the fourth federal holiday, one of only four federal holidays to honor an individual. Jesus of Nazareth, George Washington, and Christopher Columbus. Who was this man, and what did he do to merit such an honor? And perhaps the larger question, what can we learn from his short life of less than four decades? He was born, as many of you know, Michael Luther King, January 15, 1929, in Atlanta, Georgia. 
He was the son and grandson of Baptist ministers. His name was changed in 1935 when he was six years old, along with his father's name. Their names were changed to Martin in honor of the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther. He was, by all accounts, a precocious child and a precocious adolescent and teen. Uh, he actually graduated from the renowned Morehouse College, which was his father's and grandfather's alma mater. He graduated there at 19 years old. It's 1948. He, at the age of 19, matriculated with his undergrad to Crozer Theological Seminary up north because he would not be received into most Bible schools in the south. And there he received a B.D. in 1951, and then he was on to Boston University uh, to study systematic theology. And it was there in 1955 at the age of 26 that he was hooded for a Ph.D. While he was in Boston, he met a young lady by the name of Coretta Scott King, who was a prodigious figure in her own right of great character and beauty. Uh, this was the woman that he would, in turn, over the course of their short life together, have four children with. Backing up, he was ordained into the ministry at the age of 18, 1947, at his father and grandfather's church, Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. He would go on to pastor there with his father for some nine years later. Six decades, Ebenezer Baptist was led by these three men. 1954, at the age of 25, he assumed his first pastorate, official pastorate, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And as he refers to it, fate struck. Called to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church there in Montgomery, within two years, December 1st, 1955, a young lady by the name of Rosa Parks refused to comply with the Jim Crow law and give up her seat on a Montgomery municipal bus to a white man. She had already positioned herself in what was referred to as the colored or non-white section when the white section was entirely full, it was law within that town and many others that blacks sitting closest to that section would have to move back. She simply refused. What a lot of people don't know is this was her second encounter with the bus driver, a man by the name of James Blake, who only a decade ago died in his early 90s. 1943, Rosa Parks had defied a Jim Crow law by doing what every black person would do, and that is get on the front of the bus, put your money where the money was due, and then they were supposed to descend the steps of the bus, go around to the back of the bus, and enter from the back. She deposited her money in the slot and quietly walked down the middle aisle and sat down, at which point the bus driver who worked for the line until 1971 when he retired Mr. Blake said, simply obeying the laws of the town, he told her to rise from her seat, come back down the middle aisle, go down the stairs, and go to the back of the bus as she was supposed to. Um, Rosa Parks got up so as not to make a scene and make anyone late for work, she said, descended the stairs, moved to the back of the bus, at which point uh, Blake, as she approached the back of the bus, drove off, leaving her standing in the rain to walk quite a ways to her work, drenched. And now, it was 1955, 12 years later, and Blake again said, you're going to have to move. She didn't, and the rest was history. A shot was heard around the world. 
Um, the, uh, history tells us in no uncertain terms that there were many other things happening simultaneously, but this is the one that comes to the fore that sacramentally stands representative of all of those things. And the thing that we do know is that all of those things, all of those pains, all of those courageous stands led the black community to form a new organization to lead a bus boycott there. Philip Yancey, one of my favorite authors, who's one of the speakers who's greatly influenced me and consequently this church, he'll be here in March to preach to us. We'll spend Sunday morning with Yancey and then Sunday night we'll come back and have discourse with him. Uh, king was one of Yancey's hero, and to some degree Yancey has been a King biographer. Yancey says the fledgling movement, quote, by default, by default, chose as a compromise candidate for its leadership the new minister in town. The bus boycott organization chose by default a 26-year-old man named King who looked more like a teen than a man. Martin Luther accepted the appointment in spite of the fact, to his embarrassment later, he said, in spite of the fact that earlier that same year in March, a 15-year-old girl named Claudette Colvin had suffered the same fate and he had been approached and he had refused to get involved saying he needed, quote, to focus his attention on the gospel and leading his church, which gave him the mercy later to forgive Billy Graham for saying the same thing. 382 days the boycott ensued and ultimately it resulted in the Supreme Court decision outlawing racial segregation on all public transport. Immediately after that victory, King was announced as the boycott's leader. Uh, immediately after, rather, he was announced as the boycott's leader. Uh, it was interesting. I just read a newspaper article on this yesterday. King was arrested and jailed in the same town for allegedly driving 30 miles per hour in a 25-mile-per-hour zone. The next evening, shaken by the arrest, knowing that the crosshairs were now upon him, 26 years old, a small child and wife at home. The next evening after, after the release, he sat at his kitchen table and he himself admits that he was wondering if he could do this. And as he sat there wondering if he could do this, wondering what he had gotten himself into, the phone rang and a voice on the other end of the line with many expletives and ugly words that are beyond the scope of this sermon ensued to say, we are tired of you, and we are tired of your mess now. If you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. Deeply shaken, this 26-year-old young minister hung up the phone, and he said immediately began to try to figure a way out. In the next room lay sleeping Coretta and their newborn daughter, Yolanda. Here's how he described that night in a sermon given a few years later, a night that he described again and again as a linchpin, a, linchpin, a fulcrum, a, an anchor of his ministry. He said, I sat at the table thinking about that little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me any minute. And I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted, and loyal wife who was over there asleep. 
And I got to the point that I couldn't take it anymore. I was weak. And I discovered, I discovered then that religion had to become real to me. And I had to know God for myself. And I bowed down over that cup of coffee. And I will never forget it. I prayed a prayer and I prayed out loud that night and I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now and I'm faltering and I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And I will be with you, even until the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still, fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me. Never to leave me alone. As promised, three nights later, a bomb exploded on the porch of their home, doing extensive damage. Fortunately, in spite of the damage, no one was hurt. Coretta, Martin, and Yolanda were safe. King said at that moment he was filled with a supernatural serenity. He said, my experience from a few nights before had given me a strength to face it and for the rest of his 13 short years on earth. The last 13 years of his life, he said it was this promise of God's continuing presence that buoyed me and sustained me. In 1957, he was 28 years old. He was elected president of the newly formed but quickly formidable Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC. His role in the civil rights struggle escalated rapidly as his powerful gifts began to forge space for him everywhere he went and spoke. 1959, scarcely 30 years old, at the age that Jesus erupted into his ministry, he moved home and joined his father as co-pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. In the ensuing years, he devoted himself to organizing historical marches, demonstrations, some of which people in this church were a part of, in Birmingham, St. Augustine, Selma, Chicago. He was repeatedly arrested. He was repeatedly jailed. He suffered severe beatings. He was tortured with cattle prods on multiple occasions. Some say that his finest hour came on August 28, 1963 when he led over a quarter million people in the Great March on Washington, D.C. The march culminated in his legendary speech that he had not intended that day, but behind him, behind him he was encouraged by friends, tell them about the dream, Martin. Mahalia Jackson pressed him, tell him about the dream, tell them about the dream he had preached a few nights earlier in her hearing. Feeling the inspiration of not only Mahalia Jackson, but of the Holy Spirit, he set his notes aside and he gave that extemporaneous speech at the Lincoln Memorial. And joining the Lincoln's, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, it is commonly recognized as one of the two greatest speeches in U.S. history. And he was but 33 years old. 
The next year, the global community awarded him, recognizing his work, it awarded him its highest honor, the Nobel Peace Prize, and at 34, he was the youngest person ever so honored. In 1966, and I'm skipping over much here, but in 1966, in a radically bold move, King moved his family, putting his mouth, or rather his money where his mouth is, he moved his family into a Chicago slum to demonstrate their support and concern for impoverished city dwellers of any nationality or race or creed, there and everywhere, he said. His co-laborer, Ralph Abernathy, later wrote, Billy and Tommy, you were there then, you were in that. Abernathy wrote later, to their great surprise, Across the Mason-Dixon line in Chicago, they received a worse reception in that northern city than they had received anywhere in the South. You remember that. You got caught in the middle of that. You stood on the right side of it. The violence and the wrath was so menacing, Abernathy said, such as we had not seen in the South, that it deeply shook them to the core. All of King's biographers recount the tense encounter that King and his compatriots had during that time with a corrupt Chicago mayor by the name of Richard Daly. King's workers requested a meeting with Daly because he had doubled back on commitments made to them. They felt deeply betrayed by him because he had promised them a continued right to march and he had promised them as well police protection for their marches. But in the meantime, they found out Daly had secretly obtained court orders to ban all future marches. And there at that Waterloo meeting, King set silently through a long period of acrimony and rancor. And just, he said, as the meeting was about to break apart in bitterness and futility, the Holy Spirit moved upon his heart and he spoke with a calm intensity. And this is what he said. Let me say, Mayor Daly, that if you are tired of demonstrations, I am tired of demonstrating. I am tired of the threat of death. I want to live. I don't want to be a martyr. And there are moments when I doubt if I'm going to make it through. You are tired of us? Well, we must tell you. We are tired of getting hit. We are tired of being beaten, tired of going to jail. But the important thing is not how tired I am. The important thing is to get rid of the conditions that led us to march. Now, gentlemen, you know we don't have much. We don't have much money, we don't really have much education, and we don't have political power. We stand here today, and we have only our bodies. And you are asking us to give up the one thing that we have when you say, don't march. Daily, at that moment, softened. The meeting shifted and a new deal was reached. We have only our bodies. Hearkening back, hearkening back to another who with his own body whispered, no one takes my life. I lay it down. This simple phrase, we have only our bodies, rose from the deepest core of King's spiritual philosophy. It was rooted in his understanding of God and of life. You see, in 1948, the year he entered Crozer Seminary, Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated on his way to a prayer meeting in New Delhi. 
Eleven years later, 1959, King and Coretta ventured to India to observe in person the effect of nonviolent resistance, championed not only by Gandhi, but the one who inspired Gandhi, and that is our Lord, the man named Jesus. King witnessed firsthand the effect of nonviolent resistance as it led India to independence. And King later was wont to say multiple times that Gandhi was not only my inspiration, but he was the first person in history to actually live out the full love ethic of Jesus above mere interaction between individuals. In his book, Strive Toward Freedom, in that wonderful book that I would encourage you to read, King said, when I went to Montgomery as a pastor, I had not the slightest idea that I would later become involved in a crisis in which nonviolent resistance would be applicable. I neither started the pro protest nor suggested it. I simply responded to the call of the people for a spokesman. When the protest began, my mind, consciously or unconsciously, was driven back to the Sermon on the Mount with its sublime teachings on love and to the Gandhian method found in Jesus of nonviolent resistance. He left India in his words, quote, more convinced than ever before that nonviolent resistance is the most potent weapon, more than missile or gun. Nonviolent resistance is the most potent weapon available to oppressed people in their struggle for freedom. Later, he went even farther saying, one who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty, for it might be in the form of that very cell or cross, the redemption of those who perpetrate the evil against you. He was stabbed in New York by a woman. The knife lodged millimeters from his aorta. He should have died. In Birmingham, one day on a stage in the middle of a demonstration, he was accosted by a deranged man. As King's supporters quickly outnumbered the man, dragging him to the ground, ready to pummel them with their fist. King, still beneath the blows of the man who was still attached to him, was heard shouting, to his followers, do not harm him, pray for him. He never called these people his enemies. He only called us his sick, white brothers and sisters. Many blacks broke beneath the weight of nightsticks, attack dogs, Water cannons, cattle prods, bombs, torture, and the murders of their friends and families, and we can scarcely blame them for breaking beneath that load. But King, though wavering, never broke. Many drifted toward the rhetoric of black power, armed revolt, and they even derisively called King an Uncle Tom. They themselves called him mockingly Delaud. Yet, Wherever violent riots broke out, King was always there, welcomed or unwelcomed, continuing to appear, always calling for peace, desperately in his words, desperately trying to keep the abused from becoming abusers. Desperately, quoting the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, desperately not only trying to heal the bodies of his African-American brothers, 
but the souls of his white brothers, lest anyone would be overcome by evil. And in great strength, strength measured only by God, he never stooped to the tactics of oppression. He consistently, doggedly interjected into his speeches the message that, quote, Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. He went on to say, to be a Christian, one must take up his cross with all of its difficulties and agonizing and tension-packed content, and they must carry it until that very cross leaves its mark upon us and redeems us to that more excellent way called love, which comes only through suffering. It's often noted that King strategically sought out individuals like Sheriff Bull Connor, the sheriff in Selma, Alabama. King strategically staged scenes of confrontation because he believed the only thing that would cut through the calluses of a nation's seared soul was for that nation to witness firsthand the brutalities and agony of the marchers in Selma and other places. He wanted the nation to be forced to see silent demonstrators mercilessly clubbed. He wanted the nation to be forced to see vicious, trained dogs attacking adolescent children. He wanted us to see the marchers in Selma fill up in their bodies, quoting the Apostle Paul. He wanted to see this body of Christ fill up in their own bodies the wounds of Jesus, which Paul said were not complete. And like Jesus, he wanted the nation to see them offer no fight or resistance. Even for King, this approach was not without its struggles. In his letter from the Birmingham jail, which is a moving anthology of thoughts, and if I could recommend one thing to you from this anthology of his life to read, I would recommend letters from the Birmingham jail, or letter from the Birmingham jail. This was a moving a moving, assimilation, a moving assimilation of thoughts that were smuggled out on bits of toilet paper and in the margins of newspapers by his friends that came to visit him. And in those bits of paper, King recounted in compelling detail his own desperate struggle. He said, like Joseph before, who had been put unfairly in prison, like Joseph who wrestled with the betrayal of his own brothers night after night, the letters account that he stood in his own bitterness and struggle to forgive and to stay this nearly impossible course first established by his Lord who was led as a lamb to the slaughter. This one who told him, for to this, and all of us in 1 Peter 2, for to this you were called, for Christ left us an example, for when reviled, he reviled not again, but entrusted himself into the hands of him who judges righteously. In an address, an address sometime around that period to some restless students who were ready to abdicate and move to the resistance movement, King, appealing to those students to stay the course of Jesus, said, there is something in this student movement which says to us that we shall overcome. Before the victory is won, some may have to get scarred up, but we shall overcome. Before the victory of brotherhood is achieved, some will maybe face physical death, but we shall overcome. Before the victory is won, some will lose jobs, some will be called communists and reds, 
merely because they believe in brotherhood. Some will be dismissed as dangerous rabble-rousers and agitators merely because they're standing up for what is right, but we shall overcome. That is the basis of this movement, lest you forget it. As I like to say, there is something in this universe that justifies Carlyle in saying that no lie can live forever. He was 32 years old when he said, we shall overcome because there is something in this universe which justifies William Cullen Bryant in saying truth crushed to the earth shall rise again. We shall overcome because there is something in this universe that justifies James Russell Lowell in saying truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow keeping watch above his own. His words were personally prophetic. In early spring of 1968, he went to Memphis just down the road from here to support the city's black sanitation workers and white as well. They were not being paid when weather was bad. They were being sent home. In a gathering the evening of April 3rd, four hours later, somewhere up in Peoria, Illinois, I would turn eight days old. In a gathering on the evening of April 3rd, King gave his, I have been to the mountaintop speech. And in it, I'm reading from Yancey's biography of King. He pulls together many of these best words. In it, he rallied his beleaguered followers and he said, on the eve of his crucifixion, he said, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The next day, still in Memphis, on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel, he was fatally shot. Five days later, by Coretta, four small children, and his still living parents, he was laid to rest. President Johnson declared the day a day of national mourning. A crowd of 300,000 people attended his funeral. He is one of the 10 20th century martyrs, martyrs from around the world who are depicted in statues above the great west door of Westminster Abbey, one of only 10. Posthumously, he's been awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the Congressional Gold Medal. Time Magazine, in their Person of the Century poll, ranked him sixth. A 2005 joint study by the Discovery Channel and AOL voted him the third greatest American. A recent Gallup poll named him the second most admired person in the 20th century. But I would be remiss today if I didn't say he was not a perfect man. As many of you have been thinking while I've told his story. 
Since his death, revelations of his human frailty have been observed by objective historical inquiry, and his frailties have not only been observed, but by his detractors, they have been spotlighted. The latter spotlighting, no doubt by my estimation, came and still comes in an effort to undermine not only the credibility of his life and work, but even more his cause. King, as many of you remember, worked during the height of the Cold War when communism ranked as our greatest enemy. And as our nation became fearful and punchy and fell into the Red Scare and McCarthyism, King became suspect to the powers that be. History, by my estimation, has proven him to be no communist, though he admittedly tired of the inequities and abuses he saw his people suffering under the extremes of democratic capitalism, where he had watched them once legally and now tacitly be purchasable commodities. He had a famously mutually antagonistic relationship with the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, who I might say uh, had a private life, plenty of interesting details as well, we have come to find out. But with the consent of the Attorney General of the time, Robert Kennedy, wiretaps were placed on King and his associates for several years. Suffice to say, the tapes did not prove King to be a communist. If anything, the opposite was revealed by those tapes. Those tapes and their transcript can be viewed by reporters in 1927. They will be all across the media because a judge held them silently for 50 years, but in 2027, rather, in 2027, they will be released, and the first day, every media station in this country will be allowing them to roll. And those tapes will reveal that he was certainly not right of center, but he was not left to the extreme. He was a true patriot. Sadly, though, those tapes and constant surveillance did reveal that accusations of his sexual impropriety were not unfounded. After his death, many continued to defend him against these so-called rumors, but due to the Freedom of Information Act, the transcripts of many of the tapes from those taps in his hotel rooms, even the night before his death, revealed the sad facts. Those closest to him now do not argue the point, although King's attorney and close friend Clarence B. Jones said much of what was recorded was only the midnight talk of close male friends joking about things they shouldn't. King was also accused of plagiarism. It's well documented that he often lifted long sections from other sources for use in his writings and speeches without ascribing credit. There were such concerns about his doctoral dissertation at Boston University that a formal inquiry was held by university officials. The upshot of the investigation was that a full third of his thesis had been plagiarized from a paper written by an earlier graduate student, and yet his degree was not revoked because the committee said it still made an intelligent contribution to scholarship. King scholar Claiborne Carson called this textual appropriation and said the habit was pervasive throughout King's entire academic and vocational career Keith Miller has argued quite effectively, more so than I can yield, he has argued that the practice falls within the tradition of African-American folk preaching, especially of that time, and should not be viewed so harshly. 
Theodore Pappas, though, counters by saying, King, in fact, took an entire class on scholarly standards and plagiarism during his grad work at BU. He should have known better. And so should a lot of the rest of us. All of these disclosures, I believe, fortunately, have not fatally damaged his memory nor his cause, at least not in my heart. In fact, they have in a profound way underscored the reality that all of us know if we would admit it to ourselves, that there are no such thing as mythological heroes in this world. Stephen, there are only human ones. We must acknowledge that he was not simply a hero, he was a human hero, a flawed, frail human hero. And I want to say this to us on a spiritual note, one of the sad defense mechanisms, not only of society, but of individuals, one of the sad defense mechanisms utilized by my own lesser self, my own shadow side, is my tendency to elevate my heroes and saints to such mythological supernatural heights that I yield them unattainable. You say, how is that a bad habit? I'll tell you how it's a bad habit because the result is once that I get them up there, I am somehow relieved of my responsibility to imitate them because they are surely cut of a different cloth than I. And so we lift them up and we build statues and we name days after them, not to laud them as much as to protect ourselves. And yet, we have understood again and again that Jesus Christ himself never asked us to worship him, though we do, but again and again and again he asked us to follow him, which we all must admit is a much harder thing to do. It is much easier to venerate Jesus than to imitate him. It is much easier to sing about his cross than it is to carry it. Down deep, we all know whether it's Jesus, Gandhi, or King. Down deep, we all know superficial veneration is much easier than committed imitation. And as Philip Yancey so well stated, King's weaknesses provide a convenient excuse for anyone who wants to avoid his message. Ironically, people perpetrating what I believe is one of life's most egregious sins, racism, still are quick to pounce on his flaws while blatantly unwilling to see the two before in their own eye. Yancey says, many of the Christians who still balk at seeing Martin Luther King Jr. as God's instrument yet have no problem worshiping in churches that once portrayed him as the enemy that opposed his ideals and that either directly or indirectly perpetuated the sin of racism he fought with his own body. We indeed saw the moat in his eye, but not the beams in our own. Only one thing haunts me more than the sins of my past, Yancey said, who was raised in the South, who was a racist himself early in life. Only one thing haunts me more than the sins of my past, and that is, what sins am I blind to today? It took the greatness of Martin Luther King Jr. to awaken the conscience of a nation in the last century. What keeps us in this new century from realizing the beloved community of justice, peace, and love for which King fought and died? 
On the wrong side of what issues does the church stubbornly plant its feet today? As King used to say, the presence of injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What jeopardy we are in in this world if the flaws of the messenger invalidate the message. His flaws were unfortunate, but they were not undermining. And one by one who has towed pulpits and lived in a life of much reduced authority from his, I can say for sure, periodically for reasons beyond us, periodically for reasons only providence can understand, grace and power descend in extraordinary momentous proportions on a human being. He was 26 years old. He was 31 and 33. For reasons beyond us, grace and power descend in momentous proportion on a human. And often, it is the weight of that heavy mantle, not evil, that reveals the fissures and the flaws in their constitution. What a load he bore on his young black shoulders. He never saw 40 years. What a life he lived. What a work he did. What a legacy he left. What an inspiration he persists to be. Worship him? No. Follow him? We must. And so he said, so he said to those who gathered around him, march on when I am not with you. March on. March on when I have gone on to the other side. Be strong, be of good courage, for the Lord who has sustained me will sustain you. And in that famous march, I close. And finally, he made his way to Selma, to the state capitol. The building which once served as the capital of the Confederacy, when finally he led those people up the steps of a capital where the rebel flag still flew. Tired and weary, with body and soul, he addressed those scarred and weary marchers from the steps, and this is what he said, and these are our final words today. I know that you're asking today, how long will it take? I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long, because truth pressed to the earth will rise again. How long? Not long, because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long because you still reap what you sow. How long? Not long, because the arm of the moral universe is long, but it bends slow toward justice. How long? Not long, because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage for the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth 
is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpets that never call retreat. How long he is lifting up the hearts of man before his judgment seat. How long, oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. How long our God is marching on. And Martin Luther King, Jr., as my friend Forrest Harris reminded us last year on the anniversary, the 40th anniversary, or the 45th anniversary of King's death, is a mirror for our life, an imperfect one, but a one on this day, at this time, the church is called to look into again, to look past his flaws and see only ours, that the work of the Holy Spirit might rally us to the cause that he has always been on the side of, and that is the cause of justice for all men for all women, for all boys and girls. To that end, happy Civil Rights Weekend. And God bless Martin Luther King Jr. God bless Coretta Scott King and four children who offered their husband on the altar of service. To that end, we thank you, dear Lord, for calling us to the cause of that same kingdom. We thank you, sweet Christ, calling us as ministers of justice to stand for the oppressed, to bring the gospel to every soul, that it might liberate the captive, setting them free into the glorious kingdom of God. Until that day, Lord, when justice rolls down from the mountain and like a rock crushes all, like a boulder crushes all injustice. Until that day, Lord, may Grace Point Church May Stan Mitchell, may every person in this room, may we be found early, not late, on the side of right. Lead us, dear Lord, by your sweet spirit, we pray. In that blessed name, Jesus, we pray all of this. And God's people said a good and hearty, amen. God bless you. Go in the peace of Christ. Love one another well.